Good evening to everyone, and thank you all for coming to uh, the Rise of the Populists, an event uh, and a panel discussion which is hosted by the United States Study Center here at the University of Sydney, and it's uh, in conjunction with Sydney Ideas as part of the postgraduate week here at the Sydney University. So um, for all of you who are here to uh, hear more about the master's programs, uh, we will dedicate some time to towards the end of uh, the event today um, for, for those questions that will be answered by my colleague, Dr. Uh, Aaron Nigers over there. Our panel discussion tonight uh, aims to shed light on 2016 as the year of the populists. Um, we have seen uh, movements uh, all throughout the world, um, places that we study at the United States, obviously, uh, as well as Europe, uh, that have been swept by the, the kind of populist anger and, and rage with the politics and, and business as usual. We have compiled a truly diverse panel tonight, uh, and uh, I hope they will help us unpack some of these uh, most pressing issues and questions surrounding the modern populist movement. So without further ado, I would like to introduce the panel for tonight, uh, and we'll get straight on to business. So first, uh, to my left is Dr. David Smith, who is the Senior Lecturer and Academic Director at the U.S. Study Center. He's also jointly appointed by the Department of Government and International Relations here at the University of Sydney, uh, and his research examines political relations between states and minorities with a focus on religion in the U.S. Um, his recent book has been on religious persecution and political order in the United States, published by Cambridge just uh, last year. Next to him, we have uh, Dr. Elena Bloch who is uh, an honorary research fellow uh, in the School of Communication and Arts at the University of Queensland. She's currently investigating the links between political communication and populism with a focus on identifying the populist communication style. She's a sessional lecturer and a tutor in political communication at the University of Queensland School of Political Science and International Studies, and her PhD thesis was looking at the political and communication style of Hugo Chavez um, in Venezuela. Next to Elena, we have Dr. Uh, Peter Chen, who is a, a, a lecturer in media politics, public policy, and Australian politics at the Department of Government and International Relations. His research interests focus on the relationship between media and politics, with a special interest in the new media's impacts on electoral politics, media regulation, social movements, and the politics of animal protection. He's a member of the editorial boards of the Journal of Information Technology and Politics and the International Journal of Electronic Governance. Next to Peter, we have Ferran. Um, Ferran, sorry, Ferran Martinez Icoma, who is a research associate at uh, the uh, Electoral Integrity Project at the Department of Government and International Relations. Prior to this position, he was a technical advisor for elections for the uh, general direction of interior policy of the Ministry of Interior Affairs in Spain. That was a 
a long sentence, uh, but certainly a, a person well-placed to comment on uh, all things that have to do with elections all around the world, given that he's involved in this massive uh, research uh, that, that looks at electoral integrity around the world. And finally, uh, a former student or a current student uh, of some of, uh, of the members on the panel, uh, Daniel Ergas, who is in his third year of Bachelor of Arts, majoring in government and American studies, who, ha who has had a, a huge involvement in both student activism and grassroots politics. He's come uh, not that long time ago from the US where he was campaigning for Senator Bernie Sanders, so certainly first-hand experience in, in campaigning, and uh, he was also the Vice President of the Student Representative Council in 2015. Uh, and finally, my name is Gorana Gergic, and I'm a lecturer at the US Studies Center, um, and I'll be moderating the event tonight. So I'd like to start uh, first with an opinion piece, an excerpt from an opinion piece penned by President Obama just last week, and it was published in The Economist. So I quote, wherever I go these days at home or abroad, people ask me the same question. What is happening in the American political system? How has a country that has benefited perhaps more than any other from immigration, trade, and technological innovation suddenly developed a strain of anti-immigrant, anti-innovation protectionism. We have some of the far left and even more on the far right embraced a crude populism that promises a return to a past that is not possible to restore. And that, for most Americans, never existed at all. David, your thoughts. Um, how, how, did, how, did, how did we get here, and, and why did we get to here now? This is interesting that Obama used this term, crude populism, because Obama has himself tried to claim the term populism uh, at times. And during his election campaign in 2008, many people referred to him as a populist because of his apparent ideological vagueness, but real kind of appeal to essentially wanting to create a new American people. Um, Obama once condemned Donald Trump as saying he's not a real populist, you know, he's a nativist, he's a, a xenophobe, um, uh, but he, because he doesn't care about ordinary people, he's not a real populist. So, I mean, Obama clearly sees this as potentially a positive term, but he means something quite different uh, by crude populism. And I think that the way that he uses the term populism in this sense um, is the way that it's often used as a sort of, it's a term of fear. Um, it's, it, it represents a kind of politics that could potentially get rid of the kinds of uh, liberal normative constraints that we are used to in politics and essentially give somebody unrestrained power uh, by the notion of a kind of direct appeal to the people. I, th I think there are a lot of different ways of understanding populism and at the heart of all of them is this idea of a kind of moral opposition between corrupt elites and virtuous people. And this certainly isn't a new thing. It's been around for a very long time. There was a great book a few years ago by John McCormick called Machiavellian Democracy, where he basically says that a lot of what Machiavelli was talking about was he was really inspired by the history of Rome, where you would constantly see these episodes of the people basically rising up in order to control the elites in various ways, which was everything from elections to riots. 
and Machiavelli basically argued that elites needed to be constrained. And the idea that elites need to be constrained, that's a basic idea of, of democracy. I think it's something that most of us who believe in, uh, in, in democracy can agree with. Um, so what is it that makes you know, populism different, uh, different from just democracy? I think that what comes with populism um, is the idea of radical change in order to um, kind of sweep away the elite structure. And I think that there's a, there's a real fear when people use the term populism that by sweeping that away, you also sweep away a lot of other things. You sweep away uh, kind of basic conceptions of rights, legal protections, everything, sort of replacing it with somebody who's channeling the, uh, the unmediated rule of the people. And, um, and I think that that's, that's what uh, Obama is, uh, is getting at there. Why now? What are the, the sort of root causes that uh, you guys think uh, contributed to the, the sweeping wave of populism? Is um, the GFC the kind of cat catalyst event, really, and then coupled with other things that are sort of that have created this perfect storm uh, of, of circumstances that fuels uh, populism, such as uh, the kind of chronic stagnant uh, real incomes or uh, more pressing and acute problems such as the mass migration as of late and refugee crisis and the kind of anxieties around that. What would you say, where's the kind of ground zero for what we are seeing in 2016? Well. I guess, um, so I'm the uh, Australianist on the panel, and um, uh, my research tends to be entirely about Australia, and I've sort of been accused often of being a kind of nationalist academic, and that I sort of, I don't study comparative countries, and so I guess I'm going to be the spoiler on the panel, right, and I'm going to say, you know, Australians want to have a populist moment, because America's having one, and you know, obviously it's cool, it's where the cool things are, but we're not having a populist moment in the way in which other countries are, and certainly other countries are, right? Um, if we think about the kind of, you know, what often is signified as, as an exemplar of that populism, and populism is one of those terms, it's a dirty word, right? So no one calls themselves a populist, other, people's, other people are populists, <laughs> right? Um, but if, at the moment, people are saying, one nation, they're back, Pauline Hanson, she's got three senators, it's a rise of populism. Um, okay, Pauline Hanson pulled under 5% of the Senate vote, right? She's done better than that many times in the past. And certainly at her high watermark in uh, 98, she pulled 9% of the vote. So we're not having a populist moment necessarily in Australia. In Australia, we're having an ongoing, in a sense, post-white Australia crisis, right? And I think this both makes Australia different to, and also has continuity with, the rise of other particularly right ethno-nationalist populist movements around the world. So if we think about the UK, the end of empire, the kind of um, Thatcher period, these kind of um, periods of kind of national identity crisis often contribute to the rise of groups that run this kind of, you know, slightly racist, uh, reactionary sort of line. Um, Australia was born in an ethno-nationalist moment. And so Australia's you know, being populist, if that's your definition of the word, for most of its history, and then it had the end of white Australia, and then it had a short period of time, and now it's had this kind of return, right? And over 20 years, the kind of mainstream of the Australian political system has been mining out some of these populist ideas and trying to co-opt them and manage them in some way. And so if we think about uh, Marion Sawyer's 
use of the, the term market populism to say, you know, we've had figures like, for example, Howard, who've attempted to take some of the language of populism, I'm saying to run into someone else's terrain no, here, no. Um, uh, around, you know, the valor, you know, valorising the, the, the common folk, you know, the battlers and things like that, but then add this kind of spin, which was not to challenge the kind of ideological moment that we're having, which is around neoliberalism and the like. And this is why Hanson doesn't go away. So a lot of the kind of cultural turn has been co-opted by political elites of various stripes, both the Labor Party in terms of their adoption of a very strong asylum policy, and who starts the asylum wars? Keating, right? Um, but also the coalition in trying to claw that contested terrain back. But they've both tried to attempt to do that without necessarily addressing the fundamental economic concerns, right? So saying, um, accept the economic neoliberal moment, but we'll give you these cultural kind of um, responses. And clearly those cultural responses are not satisfying the proportion of the public who continue to drift back to Hanson. But I've got to say, I grew up in an Australia where, you know, um, the, the white Australia was, you know, still the cultural moment. And so we're a long way from that if ethno-nationalism is at the core of populism. Elena, you were nodding <laughs> your head. You, you have been studying a region that has maybe seen more kind of populism than, or just anecdotally, uh, has had very strong populist leaders. Um, in terms of that ground zero for today, your story goes way further kind of back or maybe you're not looking specifically at 2016 in a way that maybe uh, we are in, in the Western world. Ooh, uh, thank you. Um, first, what is populism? Yeah. <laughs> and that is a question of a million dollars. I think it had been trying to be answered for a long, long time. I mean, in the 1960s, in 1965, 67, there was a group at the London School of Economics that met uh, uh, to, just to discuss the concept of populism. And, um, and from then onwards, uh, you know, nobody can sort of grasp what is that? And uh, it's elusive, it's a disease, it's an ideology, it's a discourse, it's a movement, it's a political party. What it is, it's all of the above. So, um, Yes, I have decided that I don't want to define populism, <laughs> uh, and, that, um, and that's a decision taken, you know, after proposing some um, articles for some journals that, you know, always come back to me. But define populism. Why don't you define in this way or this other way or the other way? No. So I decided to take the definitions of populism that have to do with communication. Some people like Laclau say it is a discourse, but discourse has some, it's very charged, it's a very charged concept. So yes, it has elements of discourse, uh, but it's not exactly completely a discourse. It's an ideology, uh, yes, it's an ideology, it can end up being an ideology and becoming something else. Um, what it is? Um, it is a movement, a political party. In Europe, it's being studied only from the perspective of party. It's very party-centric. Uh, so people think, and now I go to your terrain and mine, oh, it's media populism. It's the media 
that boosts populism. Media is to blame for Donald Trump. Media is to blame for Pauline Hanson. Media was to blame for Chavez in Venezuela. Uh, it has to do, but it's not exactly. It's about the media, but not only about the media. So all my research, I have been studying populism. I am a political communication scholar, right? So from a co political communication perspective, and for me, it's a political communication style in the construction of power and identity. And it's a very particular political communication style, and I call it a style, because it's the way you construct certain kind of feelings, discourses, emotions, things. Um, because it has, it's a style that yes, divides against the elites, against the establishment, and bonds, it does bond, connects with some, with certain people that deserve alienated, disenfranchised, angry, or just, you know, anti-political people that don't believe in the political class anymore. That's why I think it's so difficult to define because it is a plastic concept. It's a very, it's like putting in your hands. You can shape it and reshape it according to, to places. In Venezuela, I'm studying recently, I'm comparing two very different guys, Hugo Chavez and Nigel Farage. Different, completely different. You could say, but why not Hugo Chavez and Bernie? They are both lefty, why not? Well, because I felt like it. I think, <laughs> I, I think Nigel Farage is as flamboyant as Trump, as flamboyant as Charles. So I see at least one characteristic, flamboyance. <laughs> Not that I use it in my, in, my, in my writings, but yes, there is something there that is very similar. So yes, I studied Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. I have lived populism in my flesh. I have lived populism of, certain, of different kinds. A sort of democratic populism, like before Chavez, we had a guy called Carlos Andres Perez, uh, who created the OPEC. Uh, well, no, he didn't create the OPEC, but he nationalized oil. His party created the OPEC in certain ways, and they were the, the philosophy of OPEC, very nationalistic, very populist, no aligned, you know, movement kind of person. But he was a Democrat. He was elected. He was actually impeached. After that, we had Chavez, which was a left-wing radical populist. Was he really populist all the time? I'm not sure. So different. I, I want to leave that there, and then I can come back. OK, we'll, we'll get from the, the kind of very in-depth study to more bird's-eye perspective with Ferran. You've been looking at elections all around the world for the past couple of years. That has been your bread and butter. So uh, compared, you're sitting next to an Australian exclusivist, as uh, Peter <laughs> defined himself. What would you say in terms of the, the kind of the causes uh, behind 2016? Um, Thank you, Erna. Thank you all for being here this afternoon, um, which is wet, sorry, a hot afternoon. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, to try to get this into some, I think that some of the points that have been already raised are, are pretty fair, right? Like, it is hard to define it. It is hard to define populism because, for instance, some part of the, lit of the literature, the more scientific or academic literature in political science, give us three traits, right? Basically, anti-establishment, authoritarian, and nativism, right? So basically, and by nativism, we mean 
and the immigrant being you know white or whatever you you wanna you wanna call it. Now those three traits, if you start to look at the panorama that we are facing today, it's some a lot of the candidates or a lot of the parties will match both of the sorry the three of those candidates uh, the three of those characteristics, right? So if you go to UKIP, they will find the three of they will match the three of them. If you go to the US, it will match the three of them. If you go, probably, Hansen will match the three of them, right? But the question is, if populism is something else or something more, what happens with uh, what, what, what Elena was mentioning with Venezuela, with Hugo Chavez, or if you go back to Europe, Greece or Spain, right? I'm from Barcelona. So if you take Greece, you will have uh, Golden Dawn, which definitely falls into these three by sure, right? But if you go to Syriza, uh, it's, it's, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't add up, right? In the same thing with Podemos, uh, you know, it's anti-establishment for sure, uh, you know, and it, and it comes back to the question that, that Diorana was mentioning, right? Why did they raise? Well, basically, they were pissed off, uh, and I can tell you a, a brief story afterwards about it, uh, but they were pissed off with the, with the economic situation when you have a 50% unemployment rate with, among the youth, that's the first part, but then also because the political elites were not listening, so that's one of the reasons, but it's different on the left side in a sense, or at least has been different, or at least we could categorize it as different in the left side and from the right side, right? Now, answering more to your point to your question, Gorana, I would like to say also that uh, there is also about whether we like the results or not, right? One of the, one of the, one of the rules of the game is that, well, when you lose, you lose, right? And maybe you can extrain the next three years or the next four, next five, well, France used to be seven years some years ago, now it's five again. Um, so, but you can, you know, throw the dice again. I'm really concerned, and this is something that I would like to share with you and, and see which are your, your, your comments, right? Because to me, one of the treats there is when the results are not going in the line that you want. So for instance, I don't care that Trump is a clown. That's fine, I mean, or, or he's a representative. I don't care. What I'm worried about is that when he says, okay, if I don't win, you know, the system is rigged. Right, so basically some people just say already, just by default the system is rigged. So basically you are in catch-22, right? It doesn't matter what you do, if, if, I, if I don't get elected, the system will be, will be problematic. And I think here we would probably start to think about, maybe it's, it's just a hypothesis to test, that we could try to see some, some characteristics that some people would be, would be sharing, right? Like if, just for, and I'll share up right now, uh, think of Bolivia with, with Morales, uh, what he has been doing, it could be around more into, into this classification. Yes, certainly something that transcends populism as such and delves deeper into just the mechanics of the elections sure. as well. And um, I wanted to maybe uh, follow up on, on this uh, definition of populism as a style that Elena uh, uh, brought to, to our attention. Um, a recent graduate, a PhD graduate from the Department of Government and International Relations, Ben Moffitt, um, has published a book where he basically discusses uh, populism today and redefines it as a political style, saying that it has kind of three basic tenets that, uh, first of all, uh, it has that appeal to the people. Um, it, secondly, it occurs in the moments of some sort of crisis, breakdown, or threat. And finally, that it's characterized by bad manners. 
And what strikes me by that definition, and obviously we, we already have the, the little kind of graphics of where the definition could go, um, but, and who, who would be ascribed to it. But I was thinking about Bernie Sanders, who is often described as that other side of the coin. You have Trump and Sanders, and both of them are in a way manifestations of the popular, popular rage on both sides of the, the politics. But with Bernie Sanders, it strikes me that the third one is missing. Bad manners. I, if anything, you know, Bernie Sanders can be accused of maybe being too too polite, too nice. He's very right? gentle. There is gentle. there is that moment in one of the debates in the primaries when he says enough with the emails. When he could have gone after Hillary Clinton, yeah. right? But he wants to bring it to just a discussion of, of policies and and so on. But my question to you, uh, Daniel, given that you've been uh, very, very closely involved in the campaigns in Iowa and Nevada, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah. How did the campaign itself um, see itself, right? Mm. Whether uh, Bernie Sanders is a populist of yeah. sorts, or is it highly contextual? Would Bernie Sanders be a populist if he lived in Sweden, for instance? Well, first, thank you all for inviting. I mean, you didn't invite me, but thank you for coming. I'm very excited. I hope this lives up to your expectations. Now, let me try and rehabilitate Bernie's image, I suppose, for him. So I worked for Bernie from July last year to February this year in Iowa and then Nevada, a word that Donald Trump couldn't seem to pronounce when he was there a couple of weeks ago. Now, thanks. So I guess what distinguishes Bernie, in my mind, from Trump when we're talking about populism is that very regularly the word populism is a bit of a pejorative term, it's a black box, right? We tend to use it to describe tendencies or people or ideologies we don't like or we don't quite understand. And I mean, to steal the Supreme Court's definition, we tend to describe populism as we'll know it when we see it, which isn't terribly helpful in an analytical way, right? I think the distinction for Bernie is that where Donald Trump is quite authoritarian, I mean, it's anti-politics, as we discussed a bit earlier. When you hear Donald, you hear Donald talk about he's the only one who can solve it. Earlier today in the debate, he asked Hillary why she didn't pass the tax reforms that she was interested in in the Senate. She answered that. She answered to the president and to the Constitution. She couldn't pass it alone. And Donald pointed to that as an example of how ineffective and how weak she is. But when Donald Trump talks about himself, there really is that sense that he is the only one who can solve those issues. Where Bernie talks about issues, it's a political revolution. He said very, very regularly that if you elected him president, he wouldn't be able to solve all of the political issues that face the US. That's what drew me in. That's what drew a lot of the supporters who we had in Iowa into the campaign, knowing that we would need mass engagement. We would need people knocking on the door of the White House to force political change, and it couldn't be vested in one elected official. So I, I hope that that rehabilitates Bernie's image a little bit. Now, I think, to go back to one of your earlier questions, if that's all right, Grana, uh, this is just like one of our tutorials. It's very fun. So to go back a bit earlier, if you're looking at the root causes of populism, I mean, one of the conversations that really stuck in my mind from door knocking in rural Iowa I wouldn't recommend it, but go ahead if you're interested. I was speaking to, must have been a 50-something-year-old man in, who lived in a trailer, and we had a very short conversation, as you were about to find out. 
and the main substance of our conversation was him looking at my shirt, saying words I won't care to repeat here. And then I tried to get in a bit of a conversation with him, and the phrase that stuck with me was, if things are getting better, why am I feeling worse? And I think that captures quite a bit of where Trump's support comes from. People who feel genuinely very aggrieved by the economic system that you know, has dominated since you know, the great financial crisis, since the Washington Consensus. If you look at Nevada, the highest rate of foreclosures in the United States, you're looking at thousands and thousands and thousands per month. People are just asking, well, where's the change we're looking for? And there's a tendency to go towards the strong man image in that case. I think that's a, a lot of Trump. I mean, this person I spoke to in the trailer, he caucused for Barack Obama in 2008, right? We're not talking about people who are right-wing radicals by birth. We're talking about people who have been engaged in left-wing politics before. So I think that can kind of hope to answer a bit of that question. Yeah. Yeah. David wanted to chip in. Yeah, I'd just like to say about Sanders that even though we look at him and wouldn't consider him bad-mannered at all, um, there were some incidents which actually in the context of uh, American politics and especially American foreign policy were pretty shocking, such as the debate between Clinton and Sanders where Clinton was basically touting uh, her friendship with Henry Kissinger as one of her foreign mm. policy credentials, and to which Sanders... Point, Sanders exploded and said, I'm glad that Henry Kissinger is no friend of mine, you know, listen to all these war crimes he's responsible for. I mean, Sanders actually talking about the US role in the 1953 coup in Iran, something yeah. the CIA only admitted to two years ago, uh, that in that context is shockingly bad-mannered uh, in, a, in, a, in a real arena of uh, sort of consensus politics, which, uh, which foreign policy tends to be. Um, he kind of was bad-mannered in his own way. I'd just like to, to build on something that, that Daniel said about, yes, that feeling, people's feeling of disappointed uh, expectations. And, you know, throughout revolutionary history, the, the revolutionary movement doesn't build at the moment when people are at their lowest. You know, when people are at their lowest, they're using all the energy they have to survive. It's when things have improved, but not at the pace at which people are used to them improving. That is, when, uh, that is when insurgencies begin. And I think that looking now at this time when these populist movements did not arise at the very height of the global financial crisis, uh, you know, at the, at the very worst points of, uh, of unemployment, they've come a few years later um, when the recovery has been uh, kind of just in terms that have been uh, very, very disappointing to people. And it's not necessarily um, people who are unemployed, but it's people who the employment that they are now in is precarious, it's not, it's not back to what it was, and they're beginning to feel that they can never expect uh, for, it to be, uh, for, uh, for it to be back to what it was. I think that kind of precarity um, is very important. And also the, um, you know, the, the importance of retirees in these uh, kind of populist movements as well. Uh, who feel that everything that they've worked for is, uh, is constantly under threat. Um, I just, I'd, I'd like to say something else, though, about, you know, there are obviously a lot of different forms that populism can, can take on. If we look at Trump and Sanders, they're two wildly divergent forms of populism. And I'd just like to mention something about, I think, why the nationalist version, which Trump represents, um, is, often, uh, is often so appealing. And I think that's a sense of, if you look out at the world, it is, you know, in many ways a frightening and terrifying place. 
where there are all of these sort of, uh, the way that a lot of people see it, I think, is that there are a lot of supranational and subnational identities that are tearing the world apart. Uh, so whether it's supranational identities in the forms of what appears to be sort of uh, warring global religions, or whether people look at their own societies and think there's no national unity anymore. Everyone's part of some sort of uh, uh, fragmented tribe. And th this is what the, the root cause of the problem is. Part of the appeal of, something like, of someone like Trump is that he says, I can make all these divisions go away, right? There's going to be one team, and that's the American team, and I'm going to lead it, and I'm basically going to lead America against the world. You know, we shouldn't be screwing each other, we should be screwing other countries. And in this sort of version of populism, you really see um, any kind of identity politics as particularly sort of dangerous. I mean, which is, I think, I think all politics is identity politics, uh, the root of it, and really everyone's got their own particular form of identity politics, and this is national identity politics. It's the idea that we need national identity as an antidote to uh, these sort of destructive subnational identities that are tearing us apart, as an antidote to the sort of globalist ideology of the elites, who uh, you know will put other countries ahead of our own country in uh, in trade deals, who will just let other people into the country where they become their political clients, and it's also an antidote to the sort of big, scary. Uh, supranational forces um, uh, like fundamentalist Islam. So I think that that's the sort of uh, you know particular appeal of nationalism that you know we we need to draw a boundary around the the people so that these corrupt elites can't bring in outsiders in order to uh, you know to win their battles or to uh, or to fight their battles for them. And unfortunately, I feel that this kind of nationalist populism in societies like Australia and the United States um, is always a bit easier to get off the ground than, uh, than the kind of Sanders-style populism, which in, which in its own way is quite kind of cosmopolitan. Elena and Peter, uh, just a quick question, and, and Elena, you can definitely uh, chip in uh, with, with uh, kind of follow-up on this discussion. But you, you guys are looking at media politics, mm. and you said yourself that uh, a lot of the blame has been put on the media, right? That <coughs> Trump is here because he received billions worth of free media, that he's been so good at playing the, the new media, the social media sphere. Um, to what extent has the, this changing role of the media as the big business or the fragmentation of media uh, contributed to the rise of the new populists and creating these kind of echo chambers where the messages are basically reinforced and, and people are being fed one particular view of, of the universe they seem to occupy? You want to chip in first? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. The um, These are all like essay questions. It's all right. <laughs> I brought Discuss. something here that, uh, that triggered my curiosity the other day. It's an article in the time uh, of Philip Elliott. And um, I will read this especially for you. This is Barbara Postema, 61. She's 61, and she's a Bernie Sanders supporter. She said, I am a grandma, and I'm doing this for my babies. I can just sit on the sidelines and what is happening. Bernie gives me the courage to do that. Bernie gives me the courage to do that. When I see him standing up there, taking on all that he's taking, it gives me the courage to take that on too. 
Corporations are taking over our government and influencing it to the point that we, the people, feel that we have no voice anymore. It is like our vote doesn't matter anymore. I feel that what we are fighting for Bernie Sanders is a vote for America. So, and so on and so forth. So I have a group here of different testimonies of Americans for Bernie or for Trump. Philip Elliot calls them the uh, political newbies in American politics. And um, because in a way he says that Sanders and Trump both are offering a revolution. And um, I go here from, from here from Elliot, who is a journalist, who covered this story. They took the pictures and they, do, they did the interviews. What drew me to this is the model I used for my thesis on Hugo Chavez that was published by Rodledge is, I call it mimetization, mimesis, Hugo Chavez and the construction of power of identity. Chavez is like Bernie from the left. I have my doubts, by the way, of Bernie being a populist. Bernie is a civic rights, civic rights fighter. He's a struggler. He, I, for me, he's the real deal. He's a guy from the 60s and 70s. He's a civil rights, you know, he, he, he struggles for civil rights and for human that. rights. And I am, I, I am in two minds. He has some characteristics of populism that have to do with the anti-establishment and things like that. But I, I, I think he's, he's a good guy. And he's a good guy <laughs> in the sense, he's a good guy if you are center ground and if you are, are working within democracy, he plays democratic rules. Trump doesn't play democratic mm. rules. Hugo Chavez didn't. He changed democracy within democracy. He decided to, to, to go to elections within democracy. I think Iglesias doesn't like democracy as it is in Spain. He's playing within democracy, but he doesn't like it. He has criticized democracy. Clinton, she is the conventional, most conventional middle center ground politician. She is elite. She is establishment, and how, that's how I think people don't like her. Don't I mean she's she's very unpopular. So, so Elena, you don't buy Bernie's calls for a revolution. That's no, I do buy them. Okay, I but do. That's what I'm those saying. Those are not populist. Would you say? Yeah. You can be a revolutionary for civic rights and for human rights without being a populist. By the way, I don't. I don't think. If you are a human rights fighter, civil rights fighter, are you a populist? I think that's quite different, but that's another discussion. What I wanted to say is, when I analyze populism, I analyze three elements. You mentioned one, identity. You need to analyze the construction of power and identity. And if you see the way Iglesias constructs power and identity, Pauline Hanson, the way she constructs, power, uh, she constructs identity and reconstructs identity of the Aussie battlers. And if you see the way Bernie, well, let's, let's say Trump, construct the identity of the midtown, the, the guy in that, in that camper yeah. van, yeah. Uh, that, that are the forgotten, the forgotten, you know, the left behind. Mm. So that, that is, Chavez did the same. So this rings a bell a lot. This sounds exactly like my interviews, my first interview with a person uh, from the communes in Venezuela. I asked him, what did Chavez tell you? In, my, in one of my interviews, and um, he said to me, he gave me an identity. Mm. 
okay, that's not material, that's not money, that's not oil, that's not from our own money, that's not political economy exactly, I, I guess political economy is involved, but he gave me an identity. And I think the key to all, one of the keys to understanding populism is in identity and in the way people are feeling confused, as you say. Cosmopolitanism was a great, great discourse, but uh, these populists are not liking it. I might, I might ask just Peter to uh, get us media. talking about the media, the media. and yeah, yeah. the I mean, shift of blame. I mean, I, I think this is a, a nice game where you can say, like, everyone can introduce a new definition of populism <laughs> and so it supports their argument. So, like, I'm going to say that <laughs> I, I think populism is any political figure who comes from the outside of the mainstream parties who the media can't explain. Right, um, and that they are populists, right? Whereas if they're inside the the tent, they're not populists, right? They're just democratically elected. Even though everyone wants to be outside now, everyone wants if to be outside the look tent. Look at some of the, at least in, in the US, yeah. everyone is an outsider of, of yeah. sorts. Even Jeb Bush. And, said that. and I think the, the relationships between media, like media, is always to blame, right? And the current way we blame the media is, oh, it's all about we're in our filter bubble. So we're all in our Facebook filter bubbles and we're just getting all our friends who share our political themes to, you know, recycle all the stuff and we never experience information outside, right? Well, that can't be the case because these phenomena necessarily, you know, like have continuity over time, right? If you think about the know-nothings in the United States in the 19th century, right, who opposed Irish Catholic immigration, right? Well. How could they have been? Because there was no filter bubble of the social media world, right? So I think we have to be cautious about some of these explanations. I'm just, you know, I pulled out these figures from Australia. Like, so if you think that, like, populism in Australia derives from a dissatisfaction with the major established parties, well, in 1967, 34% of Australians said that there's a good deal of difference between the major political parties. And then in 2013, so, like, we're talking 40, you know, 30, 40 years later, it's only 2% lower, right? Mm -hmm. And so what has actually changed? Well, it's not obviously some you know, fundamental dissatisfaction with the political arrangement. It's just where this notion of the public is, right? And so back in 1967, the public is very clearly defined in Australia. It's this bunch of white people who live in white Australia, right? And then everything that happens from them is a diversification. And so the problem with the mainstream parties is not necessarily they've had any fundamental change in their capacity to represent like a political position or to engage in like genuine political competition or that they're any more captured by, you know, mainstream economic interests or banks or, you know, the Masons or whoever it is we're fear at any particular time. It's actually dealing with diversity within society. And if there is a media effect here, it's that the media is actually too narrow. And often what we say is, oh, it's all this media diversification, we never come together. And what I'd say is, no, 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 it's not about never coming together, it's that we actually don't build any political agendas. And so all the kind of problems that we have are about a lack of a political agenda, agenda construction, right? Um, but I don't know necessarily that, at least in the Australian situation, that is addressed by populism. And I had this little list, I thought of like four recent Australian Prime Ministers and their populist moment by which they respond to political crises with populism. And they all fail. So he rather introduces the mining super profit tax, he doesn't get that up. That's an incredibly populist measure, right? Gillard proposes having a citizens assembly around climate change, this major slow crisis we're having. That does not get up. Um, Abbott himself is like super populist guy, Team Australia. Like he lasts two years. 
Turnbull now with the plebiscite is proposing this populist mechanism to resolve this social problem. None of these get up. So it's not about populism per se, it's about the capacity to all be on the same page to have these political debates. And I think the mainstream media might be more the story than the social media. Great. Um, we will start kind of wrapping up the panel Sorry. discussion to open up for, for Q&A, but uh, before we do that, just a kind of uh, question. It is about Sydney ideas, so maybe uh, kind of bigger ideas here around the fact that the cat is out of the box or, uh, you know, we've opened something and, and uh, it's going to be uh, some time before we, we kind of uh, get to maybe politics as usual or we may, may not uh, just as well. Uh, we've heard definitely uh, that one of the, the aspects that uh, of democracies and them going wrong are this idea of identity politics. And this is something that Chris Aiken and Larry Bartels uh, were writing about in a book called Democracy for Realists, just uh, came out this year, made quite a splash about the fact that essentially democracies are not producing those optimal results, given that people vote based on their social identity, not uh, around their individual preferences in a way. And I think that this has implications as well in, in terms of the, the kind of populist um, rage or or just anger that's out there. Um, so where do you guys see this going? Um, are we, you know, based on some of your research or just the comparisons, you know, across time, um, is this likely to get back to normal as soon as we, I don't know, see higher growth rates around the world maybe, or uh, something, you know, you, we, we get uh, some form of resolution of these bigger uh, geopolitical conflicts and so on. Where do we go from here? Ferran uh, and Daniel, maybe you've been excluded. Okay, now crystal ball. Um, last thing you should do to a, for a political scientist is ask him or her about the future, because they are always wrong. Uh, it's statistically like one, right? So, uh, but short answer to your question, no, I don't think everything, even if we get into the, the right track or if in Europe right now, everything, all the problems miraculously get solved, um, um, refugees, global financial crisis, unemployment, you name it. Uh, no, everything is not going to be the same. I mean, basically, they're, they're having dramatic changes in this year. Uh, Brexit, for to mention one. Uh, not to mention what is going on internally in some other countries, such as France or, or, or Spain. Uh, but what I would like to, but, but I think this point or this point of data that I'm going to give you is going to be relevant. If you look at, at the results around Europe, you'll see that there is or there has been an, the emergence of one populist party, regardless of the definition. But except, I think, it's a, for the exception of Greece, there is only one. So there's been, so far, space for only one party. So if you go to Spain, we have Podemos, and they've done outstandingly amazing. Basically, guys, they, they formed in 2014. And in 2014, uh, they, they got five seats immediately to the Parliament, to the European Parliament, and now they are the third force in the, in the Spanish Parliament. If you go to France, you will have something very, very, very different. Marine Le Pen, the Front National, something that you maybe worry about it, but it's just, it's just one party, right? You go to Italy, you have Movimento Cinque Stelle, Pepe Grillo, but just one party, right? If you go, I think, to even if you go to um, Denmark, you will have the populist party uh, call themselves the, the real Danish, though now they are split and they are coming to something different. The same thing in Sweden and so forth. And in the UK, you have the UKIP. 
Hungary, well, and, but, but the long story short is that you'll have, so far, except for Greece, that you have two parties, uh, Tsipras and, and Nova and, uh, and Golden Dawn, and Golden Dawn, you have only one party. So in a sense, it seems that, and so basically where are we going up from there, it's, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a note for, for Hobbits, that the, the growth is, is, is limited in a sense. And the other thing brings me to the second part is, up to which point some of those parties, especially in Europe, and I don't want to be pontificating around the US, is how much of them can be, what's their tipping point or, or where they can be majority. And this to me, it's like what I still see, that there are social demographic uh, barriers, very, very clear, between the young and, and the elder, as what, as what they were mentioning before. It, this is very clear. You see with the young people, they are less risk averse, if you want. Um, but still, I don't think, I don't foresee any big, clear majorities. Yeah, David. I just want to say something briefly about the US, which is it's in this odd position where people are more attached to their party identities than ever before. Um, and yet they hate their political parties more than ever before. And I mean, party of all of the sort of potential subnational identities that are destructive, party identity in the US is really, I mean, party identity can make you believe that you need no political program beyond winning elections if you're a Democrat. Party identity can make you believe that Donald Pussy Grabber Trump is a man of God if you're a Republican. Um, uh, you know, it's the, the effect that party identity has on people's brains is really quite incredible, but at the same time, they hate their parties. And while that situation persists, I think we're going to see a lot more of this. It's no surprise that both Trump and Sanders came from outside their parties and effectively ran against uh, their own parties um, uh, in some way. And I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but I don't see the US pulling itself out of this situation anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I'm a recently failed student politician, so I, may, I might not be the best person to look into the future. So I might, I'll answer quickly what David spoke about just then. You know, when you look at identity politics, it's interesting. Trump is the ultimate in identity politics. It was interesting when Elena you know, told those stories about people who referred to Bernie as Bernie. Who among us would have called John Kerry John? in any endearing or affectionate way, right? All politicians aspire, you know, in some degree, to be populists, right? I think some just aren't terribly good at it, unfortunately for them. Uh, I think when we're looking to the future, it, it can be interesting to look at how the Alicia Machado and now Trump tapes have developed in the past couple of days, which I'm sure has been playing on your minds. What fascinates me about that is that when Donald's comments about Alicia Machado were very publicly well known, very few Republicans came out and condemned him or said very little on the topic, right? But when these tapes came out, there was a huge turn. Part of that is cumulative, I'm sure, in that this was the last straw for many people. But what that can reflect as well is that Alicia Machado former Miss Universe, you know, Latino woman, had that, those comments didn't have an effect, at least the same degree, on the Republican base of white suburban men and women. But when you look at this crisis around the Trump tapes, he's talking explicitly about white married women. And I think that is a helpful way to look at it. The, the way that race politics have intersected with the Trump campaign in creating that very narrow identity around who can support Trump. 
and how that's now really been fed into the Republican Party without a change in how the Republican Party views itself or views its base. I don't expect you'll have a very different Republican Party from what you have right now. And those same tensions and conflicts will still start bubbling up. And it's, it's a very difficult problem to solve. If I had an answer, you know, I probably wouldn't be here. No, you know. Uh, but no, it would be. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think that's how you need to look at it. Those, these crises will continue into the future if parties tend to conceive of themselves and their policies in the same way. So demographic, demographics yeah. is destiny. Uh, we might open it up, uh, given that but we are uh, low on time. If you could just identify yourself and uh, pose a short question rather than a comment, that would be excellent. So we already have someone over there yet. If you can just stand cool. up and Thanks. we can work our way. Um, so this can be taken by whoever wants to. I don't really mind. Um, Assuming you agree that popular dissatisfaction in America with the establishment and debatably the democratic process um, exists, do you think do you think that governments have been expected to do too much? Like, is that part of the problem that the load is too great for anyone to actually achieve? Therefore, dissatisfaction is natural. I think, yeah. I mean, the load that. Is expect the lo the load that is on a president to achieve is just cognitively impossible. Um, it is worrying how much power and responsibility is concentrated in that one office. And but the other thing about the United States is that uh, you know the the Constitution makes it so that government is designed to fail when there is no national consensus. There are so many checks and balances and veto points in the American system that it is designed to seize up and become dysfunctional exactly the way it has when there, is, uh, when there isn't some sort of level of consensus. And with American parties increasingly adopting sort of almost Westminster-style party discipline in a system which is, was not supposed to have political parties in, in the first place, um, then yes, you're going, to, uh, you're going to get a situation where government can't do anything but stronger partisanship is not, uh, you know, is, is obviously uh, not going to, to fix that problem. Um, to understand what is happening with populism, we need to uh, put it against um, the center ground. So there must be a problem in the, in the political class. And I think, in, 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 in at least my research humbly, what I understand is that people believe they are not being heard, they don't have a voice. And that's probably what I wanted to say with the issue of identity and with the issue of connection with the people. They are feeling that uh, Washington is not listening to them. They forgot about them. And uh, the, the same thing uh, happened if you talk with people in the pubs in England or you talk in Venezuela in the chanty towns you used to before Chavez. Not now because Chavismo is Caput. But uh, in the, um, people believe that they are not being heard. There is a, I think populism is a sort, some sort of involved, some sort of communication interrupted between representatives and uh, unrepresented. And, um, and when a woman tells you that Trump, at last someone that talks like me this week in the Washington Post, I think there is a piece on that. At least, some, at last, someone that speaks like me. Something that is important. I think the center ground, the political class, is not speaking, is not listening to the concerns 
of the majorities. That that is what I think is um, hi guys, uh, my question is for the entire panel. So it, it concerns um, this almost imagined realism with figures like Trump. Like why is it that they're held to almost different standards, they can say whatever they want, yet their opponents who are the establishment like Professor Martinez says um, are accountable for everything they say. Why is that acceptable in the modern like American political system? Well the first thing I'd say is that Trump's going to lose the election, right? So I'm not sure that's actually true. but. Trump's a celebrity, right? And celebrities are different to us. They get to do different things. And they have, importantly, airs about them. They're mysterious. We talk about them. We gossip about them. We think we have an intimacy with them, but there is something that is withheld. So they can do things we can't do. But I think we, we do have to be cautious about the Trump moment. There's going to be a lot written about Trump in terms of why Trump failed, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, uh, at least the way I see it is that Peter's totally right. But we do, we need to be cautious of writing the Trump obituary right now. You know, it's two weeks to go still, longer, longer than two weeks, I'm wrong. There is still quite a bit of time to go. And there's another debate next week. Trump has really set himself up to be the most improved and be given a little ribbon at the end of the show where people say, good job, you weren't nearly as offensive as you were the first time I heard your voice. And what that means is that media narrative around Trump being outrageous and losing will lose its novelty, I reckon, quite quickly. When that happens, you'll start to see a bit of a trend. As David mentioned you know, a little bit ago, party ID is very strong in the US. Trump wasn't kidding when he said that if he went and shot someone on Fifth Avenue, you know, many of his supporters would still vote for him, right? If you're genuinely aggrieved about the economic system, if you have a real passion for the celebrity, you're still going to support Donald, right? I mean, Hillary doesn't answer those questions for you in the same way. And so, you know, things certainly can change. And I think what gives Trump that bubble is that he can say he's not a politician. There's an authenticity about him, no matter what outrageous things he says, simply because there is sexism and misogyny in the US. And you can identify Trump as a sexist and misogynist that you know in your daily life, right? He's the uncle we all have at Thanksgiving dinner. And I think that's really valuable for him because even if he does things that are outrageous, we can still say, that's terrific. Now we know he's not a politician. And that gives him a get out of jail free card in many situations where Hillary Clinton never could have that. And part of that's certainly enabled by sexism. Daniel, I would append everything that you just said with, with men. Um, and that's, yeah, why, exactly. that's why he's yeah. going to lose. And that's why he's always been going to lose because he wasn't going to get enough women, even conservative women. Started his debate today with by saying he is a politician and he can't believe he's saying that. But anyway, uh, we have a question uh, over here. Dimitar I work in business intelligence, but I love philosophy, which I think is the highest form of thinking. Um, unfortunately, many people are stuck to the lower levels. Uh, I'll start with a very quick. I'm sorry that I don't have time to say it shortly, which means I have to cut off very important things. Uh, Nikola Tesla said once that it's not about deep thinking, but about clear thinking. And uh, uh, just to, to, to uh, put some frame in this thing, I think uh, that the, the guys on the top of the food chain are very happy that we are discussing about oxymorons, which are plenty in this pretty ugly English language. Uh, ra rather than looking at the real causes, we are focused on the symptoms. Uh, so so uh, when we are talking about, uh, um, about uh, 
populist, the core word is about people. So how could that be a bad word? Uh, in the same way as when people say socialist about social, how could that, I mean, good morning, how, how could that be a bad word? So the problem is that the people use the word liberal to describe a conservative party, whatever. I mean, Sorry, do you have good. a question? So, so the question is, uh, the question is, why have we spent so much time looking at the low levels when actually the problem is the system that you're talking about? It's not about the populist. It's the symptom. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the basic appeal of populism. It's the idea that the system uh, is completely rigged and that ordinary politics, as it's been going on, is a distraction from the major issues. Uh, and so when someone like Trump, you know, presents such an unconventional picture, a lot of that appeal is, well, this is because conventional politics has failed us so badly. And, yes, yeah, so I think that you're right, that populists do look at things at the level of the system. And when Trump gets criticised for, uh, you know, the vagueness of his details on policy or when Pauline Hanson used to get criticised for the same thing, uh, you know, their supporters would, ro would respond with, you're missing the point. Uh, the point is about the change that we actually need uh, to, you know, to get rid of the system altogether. We have a question from... Oh, sorry. I've got the microphone. Um, a New York Times journalist quoted a Trump supporter as saying, he might be an F-wit, but he's our F-wit. If he loses in a few weeks' time, as you predict, the problem doesn't go away. So what should Clinton do? What should the Democratic Party do? What should the Republican Party do to avoid this problem re-emerging in four years' time? The problem is not going to go away because populism is part of democracy. Many people see populism as a disease or something external. I think it's internal. It's intrinsic to democracy. Um, Margaret Canovan, who studied a lot populism, used to say that there were two phases of populism, a redemptive phase and a pragmatic phase, and that populism sort of squeezed itself within the two phases when politics failed. I don't think it is true. I think populism is the redemptive face of democracy. They're trying to, and I hate populism. Let me tell you, I lived in a populist re regime for a long time. And I think <coughs> populists are peddlers of perceptions, of emotions. They play with our perceptions and, uh, and, um, and with our hopes. And uh, I'm, I'm here being taken a position because I lived in a country that was in populism for a long time. But what I'm trying to say here, it's not going to go away. There are more problems. And uh, Ferran can tell you about elections, trust elections and elections. There is an article by Pippa Norris uh, that says that, that they have been advancing in Europe and the world, left and right. Why? So there is something going on, and there's something that is going on is that the lead, the political class, the conventional political class is not listening. You know, the first advice that they give you when you do social media is listening, isn't it? When you are going to, to, to sort of, of do a social media space, Facebook, uh, Twitter, whatever, a, web, a website, they say listen to your target audiences. They are not listening, and that's the problem. And while they don't do it, so what I would advise to Hillary Clinton, listen. She started going on a bus. You remember her first campaign when she started, was it the boss? Yep. Going, you know, town by town. I was very hopeful. I said, okay, 
She's sort of doing the populist stuff. Then she stopped. She needed to be human and be humanized. I suppose, have you seen the piece today on the, sorry, the piece today, uh, the flash uh, mob in New York City yep. dancing? Okay, see that flash mob on YouTube, I invite you, it's beautiful. And it's uh, from Humanitarians with Hillary. And uh, try to give a human face to Hillary, not that Washington sort of technocrat that is over there and you are here. That's the problem. And there wasn't the SNL sketch after oh, yeah. hearing the yeah. Trump tapes. Uh, emerging, yeah. we have a question. Uh, well, and if we can yeah. just keep it, yeah, or, sorry. Oh, do you want to go? I was gonna, yeah, uh, or, I mean, I think I kind of disagree, okay. if that's okay, because, <laughs> Um, well, and, and David probably wants to jump in here. I mean, what David's probably going to say, and I, I don't mean to speak for you, is like the American constitutional system was set up to insulate the ruling classes from popular participation. And the problem of populism is the degree to which that has failed to operate. And we can think about the early part of the 20th century. We had people like Edward Bernays say, well, what we should now use, given that people are participating too much in politics, is use PR to manage and create this invisible government that manipulates their feelings, right? Um, it's, it's great to say, you know, politicians should listen. How does the President of the United States, this individual person with cognitive capacity of a human being, listen to a population of, what, 250 million people? I think there's a, a, a kind of basic difficulty in this proposition. And if we take, if we go to Australia and we say, you know, what level of government do Australians feel most affection for? It's actually their local level of government. And so one of the kind of, I think, inherent tensions is the scale issue of democracy and the way in which things have been moving outside of the reach of individual people, undermining their sense of political efficacy and creating this tension. But I don't know how an individual politician listens to that many people. And I remember when the internet first arrived in Australia, um, the ALP said during an election campaign, when they did their first big internet election campaign, send us emails, we're going to respond to you about your policy questions. And lots of people did. They just didn't have enough people to answer all these emails. Right? Like, you know, there's a, there's a basic limit. Don't make promises yeah. you can't keep. We have a question here, and then we'll take one more and start wrapping up. Or, um, yeah, just, and if um, you just can keep it to a question, yeah, not sure. a comment. Uh, President Duterte, 100 days in office, 3,000 extrajudicial killings. Could I get comments from the panel, please? an expert on the Philippines. I, I just want to, yeah, uh, Duterte's a sort, that's a sort of real kind of mutant populism. <laughs> that's a sort of, the body politic is sick and we need to purge it and things have gotten so bad that, yeah, we're going to throw out the sort of conventional restraints of liberalism and the rule of law. We're explicitly going to throw that out and, you know, we, we need to kill our way back to health, um, essentially. It is, I mean, and that is, that's more extreme than anything that, you know, that Trump is off reward. You know, give Trump time in office, we'll see. Um, but, yeah, that's, that is one really bad direction that populism can go in, and that is, let's kill the enemies of the people, and I show that I'm on the side of the people by killing the people's enemies and by just not observing the kinds of laws that have been restraining us from doing so. But if, if I may ask, and Duterte, I think, is one of the most despicable persons for a while, um, we have to remember that he was elected as mayor and people who voted, at least in their cities, they know what, I mean, basically the methods that he's applying right now for the whole country, it's, he already applied them for his own city. So 
Being completely agree on the same line as David, my, my, my more general question would be, okay, which are the drivers that bring people to, you know, think that we can definitely ignore the law and decide that, you know, 3,000 people are better dead than alive? Just but but can, I, yeah. can I say, this is, this is actually links to the very first question about yeah. capacity. Yeah. Part yeah. of the reason is a failure of the capacity to secure, right? So the politics yeah. in the Philippines has been extremely dysfunctional for a long period of time. And the state has been very ineffective at dealing with its law and order problem over an extremely long period of time, and we sort of get this sort of thing. But again, this is the tension between radical, you know, majoritarianism and liberalism. And there are many times in Australia's history where most Australians have supported the reintroduction of the death penalty in this country, and it has been the anti-populist, anti-majoritarian political elites that we just happen to agree with because we're, you know, all lefty academic liberals who have gone against the public will to prevent that occurring, right? So it is, it is on the continuum that we, in this country, sit as well. And just so quickly, you know, just to link to USA and the Philippines to an example that maybe more of us might know a bit about. I mean, if you look at Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Arizona, mm. this guy is seriously scary. If you haven't heard of him, go and Google him. So he runs a county on the border of Arizona and Really, he has these awful little tent cities of undocumented immigrants that he just rounds up. You know, this isn't an external crisis. Just as Peter says, when citizens perceive the state to have failed in a responsibility they consider the state to have, they start turning to some really scary people to do very scary things that might work, work in solving the problem that they might have without regard for those consequences. So, I mean, I, we shouldn't just look at this as the Philippines, how weird. It happens everywhere under the right circumstances, really. So, yeah. And Elena? You just, just wanted to <laughs> reply a little bit. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no. no. It, it was all right, but it has to do with that. Philippines, uh, uh, although I'm not very familiar, I think there is a lot of corruption and authoritarianism there. But uh, other than that, what I wanted to say is they all, they all, they all dichotomy between Rousseau, and I think Rousseau can tell us a lot, and Robespierre, a lot about people like Trump or Hugo Chavez, and, uh, and, and, and the system, elite system, Republican system created in America, it was a very elite system, not a democratic system. You are absolutely right. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that systems cannot evolve. I, I disagree with that. I think what people are telling us is that the system maybe has to change a bit, and it has to be more flexible, to be more participatory. If the elite doesn't, and I tell you for a personal experience, what happened in Venezuela, we had two main parties, one very similar to the social democrats, and or social democrat very similar to the labor or to the democrats, and one conservative, liberal, Christian democrat, okay? We used to have them both. 40 years in democracy, they got there, very young democracy, beautiful democracy, we started well. They got very, very confident in those positions. What happened? Then Chavez emerged when they least expected it because they were not listening to the people. So what happened? We had to make democracy more participatory. Uh, we didn't even elect governors at the beginning in the 70s. We started in the 80s. So we didn't have that kind of participatory democracy. What I was saying is we need to listen because we may need to, probably democracy need to change a bit as we know it now. It doesn't necessarily need 
seems that is good because it's an elite system, should it be a little less elitist? There's never been democracy. I, 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 and just the final I, I question, we're running out of time. My name is Stefan. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, specifically uh, Peter Chen regarding uh, media. Uh, I watched that uh, debate, and uh, before that debate, uh, ABC was uh, uh, interviewing some reporters, and it was clearly uh, clear that uh, ABC was uh, ABC was uh, uh, somehow directed to stand by Clinton. Um, although it seems to me. I don't know much about deeper politics, but it seems to me that uh, our leader, Malcolm Terrible, says growth, employment, great country again. What uh, the other guy, uh, Trump, is saying. So how do you explain that our media sides with Clinton, but the politics seems to be like Trump's politics, the same like ours? Can you explain that, please? I, that's, that's a, to do with the American political spectrum. Every mainstream conservative party in the world, with the exception of two, is closer in policy position to the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. The only two exceptions to that are Likud and uh, Viktor Orban's party in Hungary. Um, basically, yeah, if, if Hillary Clinton was in Australia, just based on her pure policy positions, she would be in the Liberal Party, and she wouldn't be in the left of the Liberal Party either. Um, it's the, the American political spectrum is such that, uh, you know, that in fact basically everybody, not, not everybody, you have the Cory Bernardis, uh, you know, and you have people a little bit further out, but most people within mainstream Australian politics are actually closer. Uh, to Democrats than they are to Republicans. And even though most Australian politicians prudently do not comment uh, on American electoral races, 90% of the politicians in this country are desperately hoping uh, for a Clinton win. One little thing about the media. I think the media, and I agree with you, uh, the media, <laughs> we sort of, media, oh, this is media, everything to blame is the media. The media, the media people are journalists, and they are as fascinated and addicted to newsworthy things, to things that are news, like anyone. So they are fascinated and addicted by Trump. And it happens everywhere. That's another characteristic for me that some people don't take into account when analyzing populism. Populists use the media, but they also have a relationship with the media that is very controversial. They fight with the media, and by fighting, and even the media by being against the populists, they help them. So you can see how Trump didn't spend a lot of money in advertising, while the others spent millions and millions and millions, like Jeb Bush, and he got a lot of free space in the media. Even by antagonizing, they gain, because that discourse is in the heart of, we have to look at the people who are voting for Trump. I think that's yeah. the only Peter, thing. are you happy with those responses? Yeah, generally, I mean, I'd, I'd probably just reiterate, I mean, Trump's not going to win the American election, barring an unforeseen thing. And I guess probably the only thing I'd say is Australia spends so much time paying attention to American politics because we're a client state of the United States. Of course we pay attention to them. They set a lot of our policy. So that's why we 
know what's going on in the United States and yet no Australians have any idea what's going on in New Zealand right now. I mean, does anyone know what's going on in New Zealand? No. One last point and we might close the... Yes, sorry. We are Yes, since we're closing, I'm not going to say anything about the US, but I want to address the question that the gentleman in the pink, sorry, in the purple mouth made, uh, which is what to avoid to do with this situation again, which I think comes to be the biggest question, right? Like if we don't want to be in four years time in the same situation with finding a, a Trump or whomever in, in a different country. And also I think it, it talks to the first question about expectations with with government right I mean and I think and here I'm gonna put my uh, before I be an academic I was I used to work for politicians and honestly I think that the, the best thing to do here is talk to the public as they are grown adults not treat them as stupid people I mean people understand and I come believe it from a country in which we went through a huge massive uh, retrenchment but you have to explain it and then treat them very clearly, answering basically saying, okay, we can do this, this, and this, but we are not gonna be able to do this, this, and that. Now, the problem obviously, this has costs and you have to be able to, 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 to vary with them. But in a sense, in, in, in Spain, we say sometimes that in order to create an omelet, you need to break the eggs. So, well, yeah, every decision has costs. And I really think that in order to avoid those sort of situations is to treat the public as, as adults and basically saying what you may expect. But, Maybe it's wishful thinking. Maybe it's why I'm not in politics anymore. And Just also that very germane note, if we can take it okay. to, uh, to, to the closing and thank the panel because we are running out of time. I've seen that there's... <laughs>